0: Thank you
1: sitting here with Steve Chapman who who happens to be an agent of, of National Land Realty and a specialist in in our subject matter for today and I'm here with Mike Chamberlain who is uh you know among credentials so you specialize in if I were I'm I'm taking this straight from from your uh, your bio page here uh wildlife ecology and management game management non-game and endangered species wildlife and forest management and wildlife population genetics as well as research in wildlife sciences, uh, and we're here today to talk turkey, and it's convenient because it's right after Thanksgiving. and so um everybody's had their fill of of tryptophan and everything and and uh, <laughs> so uh, so Mike, I just you know, I'll, I'm gonna kick off with you to tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, i, I can rattle off credentials, but uh, let's let's hear from you as far as you know what your areas of research
2: are and and your background. yeah, my my background's pretty. Pretty simple. I was a I was a suburban kid, grew up in Virginia, and and um, always wanted to to be a wild a quote unquote wildlife biologist, although I didn't know what that meant. I had no idea. Uh, went to a school at Virginia Tech, majored in wildlife science, and really kind of flourished there. I, I kind of got my feet and figured out what I wanted to do, and and that was to go to graduate school and try to, to do science. And once I landed in graduate school at, at Mississippi State, I I did my master's research there, was asked to stay on and do a, to do a dissertation research. So I did my doctoral research there at, at Mississippi State and, and rolled right out of graduate school into a faculty position at Louisiana State University and uh, where I was hired to do research and teach. And the rest is history. That was that was 23 years ago that I started in academia as a researcher and I've been going strong since.
1: And then Steve, uh, just give us your, your background shot. And, and you know what? I, I feel like you tell the story better, how you met Mike and uh, tell us how you got to national land.
0: Yeah, well, first off, I would not say that I'm a turkey specialist or anything like that because if I was, I could figure out how to kill them more. But uh, they are uh, can be an aggravating bird. Um, my buddy and I, Reggie Thaxton, who was the quail coordinator for Georgia DNR, and and uh, he and I go back and forth on that. Of course, I think Reggie loves both the wild turkey and the um, and the northern bobwhite quail, but. Uh, I I graduated uh, from the University of Georgia uh, many years ago with a degree in timber management. Now, I worked, I, and I, my um, career, I worked for consulting forester for seven or eight months right out of school, and then um, went to work with the Georgia Forestry Commission, uh, which is a state forestry and wildland fire agency here in Georgia. Um, And, uh, I worked as a county forester working directly with private landowners, providing them forest management advice, wildlife advice, and working with other professionals and doing that. And then, uh, about halfway through my career, I, I got a job. I, I was, I guess you would say I was promoted. Some people don't like going to the state headquarters, but, uh, I did go there and, uh, Primarily that job was was assisting our foresters in various other things. I was the cost share programs coordinator uh, for the state. And then I retired from the Forestry Commission with 28 years of service in 2012. Did a little bit of consulting, and then I was actually marking some timber, fighting the briars in some of the thickest, thin pine stands that had not been burned. Um, I got a phone call uh, from Reggie Thaxton uh, and uh, he had a said there was a job opportunity with the National Bob White Conservation Initiative, which is a twenty five state uh, Bob White Quail initiative. Uh, so I put in for that, got that job and and did that for about six years. And it being on grant funds, that job eventually ran out. So, uh, It's been two years ago um, when that uh, funding ran out on that job. And so I decided I'd go back into forestry uh, doing some consulting. Uh, I had been working on my um, taking the course for my real estate license. So I finished it up. And while I was working with um, NBCI, I met Drew Arnold, who is also an agent with national land. He was working with uh, the Alabama Wildlife Federation at the time and then went to work with the state of Mississippi and decided to go to uh, do national land full-time and leave the state of Mississippi. So he, I knew he was there, contacted him, and then from there he got me in touch with uh, Logan Eaton. and And so I've been doing that and I'm still doing some consulting forestry also. And how I'm, I met Mike, I had been following some of Mike's work with with the wild turkey. Uh, he does a Turkey uh, Tuesday on Facebook that's always got pretty good information. And then I, I met Mike for the first time at uh, a Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife uh, meeting. And at that meeting, he was actually talking about black bear, I think. Uh, <laughs> So then I've just kept up with Mike ever since. But the wild turkey does interest me. And, uh, you know, a lot of folks like duck hunting. I've I've duck hunted, but I've never developed a passion for it. But, uh, you know, deer, turkey, bobwhite quail, and then I do like to do, I like to fish. So that's where you can find me a lot of times.
1: You know, the thing I love about being able to hop on this podcast and talk to you folks is I don't think there's been a single time where I am not completely over my head with the people that we have on talking about topics <laughs> like I, I I'm a mediocre bird hunter does that qualify me for the conversation <laughs> so, no i I thank you both for being on um this this is this is fantastic and it's, it's a great topic there there's people all you know everybody's got their specialty everybody's got their thing that they're interested in it could be quail it could be deer it could be elk it could be any number of things and turkey is one of those things that some people just become obsessed with and it's a very kind of significant population of outdoorsmen conservationists as well that are that are you know just in love with the topic so um, I feel like this holds a lot of value Um, I wanted to ask you Mike some of the you work on several initiatives kind of throughout the country, like projects, right? And yeah. mm-hmm. are, are you currently working with any Turkey specific projects? I know that you're working with a few and in, in, with deer. And, and as Steve said, you worked with black bear, um, current projects. I didn't know if you had a project low with Turkey.
2: Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I have, I'm involved in research projects now, uh, across multiple States in the Southeast and the Midwest. Um, I'm involved. Let's see. Gosh, South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Nebraska. I mean, yeah, Kentucky. I'm involved in in work on turkeys in quite a few states right now. So just a couple states, right? Just yeah, yeah. To be honest with you, I don't. I mean, I still I still do work with. I have some I have a bear project actually a couple of bear projects I'm involved in and some deer projects I'm involved in but turkeys for various reasons that we'll talk about have have garnered a lot of my intellectual and personal effort over the past decade and has really kind of taken over what I what I do professionally in a lot of ways it it stemmed you know kind of um steered me towards becoming active on social media and developing websites and, and trying to disseminate information about that bird. So it's in a lot of ways, it's really, it's really become a, a prominent part of who I am as a person and a professional.
1: So uh, piggybacking on that, what's the draw to turkeys for you? What, what pulls you
2: in? You know, one is i'm I'm a turkey hunter and i have i was you know i was a turkey hunter before i was a, a researcher and i've always been interested in the bird they're really they're really cool they're they're they have i think what really draws me to turkeys is that we think we know so much about them but we don't and they they have a really complex social structure they're you know we look at turkeys and we think well it's a flock of birds and and in reality it's not it's they they have a really defined hierarchy within these flocks they know each other they can recognize each other based on appearance based on sound um they're just a complex bird you know males don't participate in rearing young it's just females so um it's just a, they're just an interesting bird and what really fascinates me about them is that they're so like Steve said they're so damn frustrating sometimes when you're hunting them and in reality they're not that i mean they're yes they're intelligent but they they don't think about the world the way we do they just they react to their environment and they've been honed through eons of time to be the you know, the weary species that they are, and and that kind of putting my researcher hat and my turkey hunter hat on at the same time, that's what really interests me the most, is that I look at the bird from two completely different perspectives, and marrying those two perspectives really kind of pushes turkeys to be super interesting to me, because I I see them through multiple lenses.
1: So I want to hit you on the hierarchy question in a second, but I want I want to let Steve jump in and tell kind of his side of his interest with it. But I, I want to come back to this, this the, the hierarchy within their within their their groups. But Steve, what what, what pulled you in the turkeys here?
0: Well, um, you know, when I when I was growing up and when I came out of college, there weren't a whole lot of turkeys in Georgia. They were they had started doing a lot of Reintroduction, getting birds from other places and bringing them in. And, uh, you know, if, if you were riding down the road in the late eighties, early nineties and saw birds or, or saw them in the, in the, in the woods while you were even working, you know, that was something to see. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I started hunting with a, uh, a, a coworker down in South Georgia where they were even more few and far between the woods were so thick and all like that. So, um, you know, it just has been something that, that I've I've taken a hold of. And, and I tell friends and tell other people, if you don't have a bad habit in the springtime and you want to take it up, Take up turkey hunting, and your wife your wife might not be real happy with you if you ever get hooked. You know, I've I've had friends quit bass fishing because they start turkey hunting. (laughs) So it's it's just one of those. It's addictive. There's no
1: question. Yeah. So I want to I want to ask some questions from like a one hundred and one level, just because I think that that's good for people that you know. Obviously, there's going to be listeners that are not as familiar. So. Base question, how many types of turkey are there? And we'll say in North America. Let's go North America. Like.
2: So there's, you have five subspecies of wild turkeys. Um, and then you have oscillated turkeys, which are completely different species. So you have two species of turkeys, but uh, specific to the wild turkey you have five subspecies and those are kind of loosely associated with you have the osceola subspecies which has been called the florida wild turkey by some obviously restricted to florida you have the eastern subspecies that's that's basically from kind of the center part of the continent east to the atlantic ocean kind of think you know uh, midwest over to the Atlantic and then as you go out west you have you get three subspecies that are kind of loosely associated with uh, the Rio Grande subspecies it's found in Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas down into Mexico and you have the Merriam subspecies which is kind of in pockets out west anywhere from Nebraska to the Dakotas to Montana and Wyoming and areas. And then you have the goulds, which is the the subspecies we know the least about. And it's mostly because they're they're isolated primarily to Mexico. There are some goulds in the US and New Mexico and Arizona, but most of them are in are in Mexico itself. And that's the subspecies that we know the least about. Gotcha. Is that just like you said because they're in an
1: isolated pocket, or just not heavily researched or hard to find?
2: All of that. All yeah, of that. <laughs> yeah. They just haven't been. They just haven't been well studied, and um, and unfortunately, you know, if you look at the U.S., the the Gould's is the is the least abundant subspecies. I mean, you have two states that have fairly small populations. So to to go into the heart of Gould's country, you have to travel south of the border.
1: Is there any kind of estimate nationwide what the wild turkey population might be in general? I realize that's a really broad question.
2: Well, in reality, no. Um, If you look at there are some documents in the literature saying we think we have x number or that number or this number but the reality of it is we don't know how many turkeys are out there and we never have and that's that's one of in my world that's one of the the real issues um that we're trying to to work through right now is how do we how do we figure out how many birds are out there and and if you think about it, I mean, we we hunt and we remove birds, but we don't know how many are out there. So we don't really know what we're taking. Um, and you have a species like turkeys where right now the demand exceeds the supply in a lot of areas. And so we're really and it's just not just me. There's a lot of folks out there like me that are trying to figure out, you know, can we come up with a method to tell on the state agency about how many birds they have and we will we'll get there it's just it's just taking some time and and in the turkey research world like other researchers we've answered the easy questions <laughs> you know we've um we've answered all of, we've grabbed the low hanging fruit many many times they're over but now with the, the declines in populations that we're going to talk about Now we're having to try to answer the really tough questions and, and the abundance, how many are out there is one of those tough questions.
1: Are there any, any states in particular that have the best handle on sort of an assessment on populations or anything?
2: There are, I mean, there are some states that, you know, it's, it's a little easier to get a a handle on abundance if you can see birds. You know, so as you move as you move into areas where turkeys are more visible, you can get a little bit better sense, you know of what you're dealing with. the The Eastern subspecies is tough because you know when we get like where Steve and I live, you don't see turkeys. I mean, they're not they're not just standing around in farm fields all the time. And you know our winter flocks, I've lived here for I'm going in my thirteenth year now, and I've only seen a handful of, of true winter flocks where I felt like I saw every bird in the flock. I mean, they, they're they just not, they're not easy to see sometimes, whereas in other areas you, you can see them. So I think it largely depends on how visible the birds are. You know, I, I go out West and hunt every year and after a few days of hunting in a general area, I've I've got a pretty good sense for, okay, there are seven groups of birds and they number, you know, 106 to 122, or you know, I, I've got a pretty good idea from moving around, but you don't do that here in, in Georgia. <laughs> you don't just drive around and get a sense for how many turkeys are out there. I was gonna say both of you have been involved with
1: initiatives with turkeys, and so maybe I, I feel like it's a good question because you guys deal with brush and timber and and stuff on a in terms of thickness and how dense the cover is that a lot of people haven't seen before so since both of you have done this how do you how exactly do you go about counting or observing is it just pick a general area and sit down and wait or like how how does that how does that process go
2: steve probably sees more turkeys in his line of work than i do for sure i i'm sitting here (laughs) on campus i don't i don't see many i don't see many turkeys unless i get out and you know get out of this office but yeah, I mean it's 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 tough. I mean, most of the experiences I have with turkeys now, at least this time of year are when I'm deer hunting. You know, and I, and I interact with them or happen to catch a flock while I'm driving around, but it's it's very fundamentally very different here in the
0: Southeast where it's so dense. So, what are some behavioral parts
1: of turkeys you you were talking about the hierarchy within their their groupings what what are some behaviors that people aren't really all that aware of with with turkeys
0: oh gosh um i think i think one thing that most people probably don't
2: realize about turkeys is that there's constant strife there there's constant bickering and constant gamesmanship and constant um kind of this notion that they're all trying to look for an edge over each other and that that is something that goes on year round you can see it if you pay attention like if if you you know if you watch a winter flock right now that's moving around you'll um you'll see that you've got um you know, birds, they'll space themselves out from each other. They'll, they'll vocalize to each other. But if somebody finds something to eat, one of the other members of the flock is subject to come over there and try to, try to find it or take it or, or use it. And so you get this kind of constant chasing and, and moving around Mm -hmm. and this constant, like, Hey, um, I'm not going to leave everything Calm like it is. I'm going to constantly test each other, and you see that with turkeys, pretty much year round. But it's really obvious in winter flocks when you've got a bunch of individuals together. There's, it looks like it's calm, but it's not. It's not. It, there's constant testing of one another, and that goes back to these to these social hierarchies that they have. That you know, within those flocks that you see, there are dominant individuals that are dominant over everybody around them and then there's this very orderly progression of there's a dominant bird there's a second bird there's a third bird and and therefore the you know they you have this you have structure you have this rigid structure in place and it doesn't break down until birds die so it's it's fairly constant, and that that structure dictates their life. It dictates how they behave around one another and It's very obvious when you watch turkeys if you if you get to spend time around them, you can pretty clearly see who dominant who's dominant over one another i mean they're they they keep everyone around them in their place, if you will.
1: So and when you're talking about this, is there usually one sort of is it like an alpha structure and there's one singular or are there multiple sort of group leaders within one certain flock or or how does how's that kind of work?
2: Well, and so what happens is in the summer when you, you you see birds that are are together, you're what you're seeing in the summer are brood flocks. And what I mean by that is you you have hens that hatched poults and they get together in these flocks and the adults are dominant over the juveniles all the time. But then as those flocks mix together into the winter flocks that we have now, where you may have, I'll I'll just give you, I'm just picking numbers here, but let's say you have 20 hens that are together. There may be 10 of them that are adults, 10 of them that are juveniles, and within that group, you may have multiple social structures to get. You may you have multiple hierarchies where you may have six or eight birds that have been around each other quite a bit, and they have their hierarchy. and then you may have four or five birds that have their own hierarchy and and so on and so forth. So there's there's constant like, I don't know what the word clicks almost, where you've got little groups of birds that are together, but they have their own hierarchies and they have their own structure. They're just part of this bigger winter flock, if that makes sense. So they get along with everyone, but there is very rigid structure in place within within groups of birds.
0: So...
1: In back in high school is kind of when I got my interest in wildlife biology and I had a a science teacher, Mr. Richards, if you're out there, uh, sort of he did some research with uh, with magpies in particular. And he was telling me about some of the structure that they have and where like when when one will pass away, they'll kind of gather and, and they'll have territories and they'll kind of figure out they'll they'll work with territories. And some think that they'll like divide territories after a death or they or they they'll talk about magpie funerals, right? Well, they'll they'll kind of go out and, and recognize, you know, mm-hmm. bird, and they're just kind of <laughs> curious about it. Are turkeys similar? Do they have? You you mentioned that they recognize each other by things
2: like their look and their call. Is is there a, a structure that works sort of similar like that with turkeys? Not that, not like magpies. No.
1: Okay. Yeah, no. I was curious about that. Well, what kind of recognition do they have
2: of each other? what we what we know is that they they obviously can recognize each other based on their vocalizations, based on their calls. We think that they're logically that they recognize each other from their heads, um, which is part of the reason why we think. And, and I mean, we can't really ask them, you know, I mean, we can't we can't really ask the question, but we think that's part of why they head-peck the way they do. When they attack each other, if you, if you watch turkeys, when they attack and when they try to um, put another bird in its place, so to speak, they attack, they they head-peck, and they do that from a very young age. When they're only a few days old, they'll peck each other on the head as a way to, to assert dominance. Um, and when they get older, when they attack each other, particularly toms they'll they'll head wrestle they'll neck wrestle they'll you know they fight directly face to face so we think there that logically there's some type of recognition to to the uh, their appearance right um we also know that hens and this is based on on research hens can recognize dominant birds within the flocks because those dominant Toms, those males, they're more iridescent. They they shine. They they look different to her. they the hue of their feathers, the iridescence on their feathers, in other words, the shine, if you will. The, you look at a turkey; it looks like a black, you know, blob. But then, as they turn in the sun, there's there's this really brilliant iridescence about their feathers. And we do know that hens can detect different iridescence levels in toms and they do they do pick the dominant birds based on that iridescence and we also actually know that the more iridescent birds have a lower parasite loads they're healthier than birds with less iridescence and so it makes sense that hens can kind of recognize that if you will they can look at a tom and go yeah he's he he's socially dominant, but he's he's also more fit. He, you know, he he looks better. He's sexier. He's showier type of thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of complexity with recognition in this bird, like there is with a lot of species. You know, I think there's a lot we'll never know, and that's good. That's that's okay. There's but but what what we do know, yes, suggested they can recognize one another based on appearance, and they can recognize. Um, characteristics of each other based on appearance. So it's like the turkey version of broad
1: shoulders and a six pack. Okay. <laughs> so Steve, I, we, I know that you just lost audio. We've been working, we're working behind the scenes here. Steve lost some audio there and we hit a couple of questions. I want to give you a chance to weigh in. Okay if you want to jump in. Well, I was, so I, if you want to weigh in on the questions I hit Mike with, as far as behaviors that, that you've worked with or, you know, or observations that that you've done with turkeys and stuff like that.
0: Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. You got me. All right. Yep. Yep. I just want to make sure. Back, You're, you're uh, back, man. Yep. Well, I guess most of mine has been, uh, you know, when you ride the roads and you see uh, birds, uh, you know, every once in a while you see them in fields or on the edge of roads most of the time. And, and you know, you'll see those hens that are dominant in those small groups like what Mike's saying. But then you do see the males, uh, you know, when they become dominant, and, and Mike's probably seen it. I've seen it when a bird gets shot and there may be a couple of jakes nearby. They'll They'll go and just start pecking on that bird that's been killed, you know, just trying to take over that dominance. I, like, I do right, remember. Yeah,
1: you're down. I, I get to take over now.
0: <laughs> yep, yep. You know, I remember um, I went to uh, Texas many years ago to, to uh, on a hunt, and um, we were set up on a field, and that evening we watched a group what looked like young birds. There was this bird – uh, they would keep trying to come across the field and these young birds would just chase him away. Um, that was our first evening out there. And then the next morning we figured out which way he was coming from and, and, and ended up getting him. But I don't know if we hadn't uh, got between him and those, those younger Jakes, there was a group of probably eight or nine Jakes that would run him off. And that, you know, that just, Of course, come to find out, he had some disease and probably was not, you know, real dominant in his, uh, he was a nice bird, but just, I don't, I don't know. Mike maybe can answer that about the disease and all of that. But,
2: um, yeah, anything that would predispose a bird to being sick or malnourished or run down or anything, I mean, that compromises their, their ability to, to fight off, you know, or, or to to be in contest with other birds where they're trying to assert dominance steve brought up a really interesting thing if you're a turkey hunter you and you you're lucky enough to have seen this i'm fortunate i've seen it a number of times where you know you you may have three birds let's just say you know two or three toms come up at once and they're all adults i mean they're adult birds you shoot one and the other two one of the other two runs off and the the third one stands there and starts attacking and flogging the bird that's dead that's on the ground and it just speaks volumes about how these these dominance hierarchies dictate their life i mean this so a shotgun goes off and a bird collapses and instead of running off your initial reaction is to to go ahead and take this opportunity when this bird that's been dominant to you for for months and if not years, is now compromised. Go ahead and attack him and and get on top of him and and assert your dominance. And it just speaks volumes about how impactful these hierarchies are to their behavior. Uh, I mean, multiple times I've got video of this where, um, you know, I've walked out to birds that are attacking other birds and had to get within. A few feet of them to get them to leave i mean they were just uh just you know livid i mean you could just see in their eyes there they all that mattered at that point was asserting their dominance it didn't matter that the six foot you know human predator was walking up to him all that mattered was i need to assert my dominance and it, to me every time i see it i just It really impacts me because it just speaks volumes about from the day they're hatched, dominance matters. I was going to say it's just a hardwired, innate function of of how they work. Yeah, and I mean, to the point where they can't turn it off. You know, I mean, it takes takes something significant like a human being standing there to turn it off. You know, and it just, to me, if you think about For that to happen, whatever it is that you're reacting to has to have influenced you for for quite some time. And it has to have been extremely impactful for you to disregard predation risk and mortality risk to advance whatever it is. And in this case, it's it's dominance.
1: So let, let me ask a chicken and egg question about turkeys. You, you were talking about the, uh, the 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 dominant males being more iridescent. Is that a reflection of their sort of innate genetics? They just had superior genetics growing up. And that iridescence is a result of having superior genetics. Or once they achieve sort of a more alpha status that I, I don't maybe it's self-esteem, right? I don't I don't know. But does the do, do the feathers become more iridescent as they sort of work their way up the hierarchical chain?
2: no we we think it's mostly linked with you know nutrition and genetics you know there's just as they get as they get older and they're dominant you know one they have they have preference to resources so dominant birds you know are going to get the preferred resources in the environment and they're not going to be constantly harassed by underlings so they're going to be more fit. They're you know, like I said. You know, research has shown a very clear link between that iridescence and parasite loads. Um, birds that are more iridescent have much lower parasite loads, meaning they're healthier. So I think it's just this cumulative effect of they're just better. They're just more fit. You know, they're better, stronger, more aggressive birds. They have preference to resources. And that kind of culminates in them looking better as well.
1: And I, I discounted resources. That's, a, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. This one just ate better. It's in a better environment. It's done better in the wild. Um, I I didn't even think to ask, what's the average lifespan? And it does it vary between species? Or not, sorry, subspecies. Let's see that one yeah. terminology here.
2: So we don't, it looks like based so for us to learn the answer to that, we have to band a bird, like catch a bird as a, as a youngster, and then it'd be re- shot or recovered or recaptured, you know, in the future. And based on that, it looks like for toms, if they make it to about age five, that is, that's old. Um, about half of, of the birds that if we band them as a Jake, meaning they're, you know, they're less than a year old, basically. If we catch them then, if they're going to be shot, about half of them are shot the next year when they're two years old. Beyond that, it, it, I think the, speaking personally, the oldest tom I've had harvested was nine. A bird that was banded as a Jake that was shot was nine but that's really rare. Most of the time if, if you get a bird in hand that ends up being 5, that's pretty damn that's pretty old for a wild turkey. Now the hens, it looks like they average about 5 on, on you know years of age, but there's records of hens being 10 plus um, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. I mean, a hen that's nesting every year and sitting on a clutch of eggs and so many predators in her environment you know for her to live that long is that's pretty remarkable but it looks like on average it's about five
1: so they're kind of like humans on that level you know the 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 guys do more dumb things we tend to live shorter lives
2: (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) they definitely live a riskier lifestyle if you will um which is pretty i mean it it makes sense one interesting thing we are seeing which is kind of this is some of in fact right before I got on this podcast, I was meeting with two students about this. We're, we're looking at personalities of these birds now. And in other words, um, it's very clear that some males are much more risky than others. They just, they're, they just, they move more. They use areas closer to opens openings and roads and, and there's some that are just really shy. There's some toms that are just really shy. They they really avoid human activity. They don't gobble as much. They they're just they're just shy. And as you can imagine, the riskier birds die um, to the point where it's pretty dramatic. Pretty dramatic. So a lot of the birds that are shot, if you look at their behavior before they're shot. They're all in this one personality. They move a lot. They move fast. They have large ranges. They cover some ground. They don't mind being near a road. They don't mind gobbling. That et cetera, et cetera, and their survival probability is much, much less than the the shy guys that stay away from roads, don't gobble as much, don't use much of a home range. They hunker down. That that turkey is hard to kill so there is some relatability to us (laughs) yeah hunker down during if you're being hunted hunker down just keep your mouth shut which your my (laughs) wife tells me every day just keep your mouth shut
1: yeah i I am told that as often um so i want to jump into populations um because you know again we're looking at the time budget here i want to make sure that we can cover this because this is probably the most important part and and steve i want to hit you with the question. You know noticeable pop noticeable population decline have you seen it and and um what's what's the what's the perception what's the the um you know what have we seen
0: i I mean i have seen it in areas where i hunt or have hunted in the past um but i don't know what to attribute that to i mean i think a lot of it in one area where i was hunting. Um, uh, you know, and I I relate a lot of things back to habitat management. Uh you know, thinning uh thinning and burning and opening the stands up and keeping that uh underbrush down has has uh you know can make a big difference. Uh I don't see as there used to be some places that we could ride by between, you know, right around here locally and open fields during the spring, early, late winter, early spring, and it'd be loaded with birds. And now you just, I haven't seen birds in that one particular field I'm thinking about probably in eight or nine years. Not maybe one or two birds, but nothing like what used to be. Um, you know, I i got in a, a new hunting lease uh, this past spring and turkey hunted it for the first time, even though I didn't kill a, a bird off of it. I probably heard and saw more birds, males especially, uh, in this area, uh, same landowner has a couple of thousand acres in this area, I think. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been thin, some burning and, and, uh, you know, I, from where I was at this spring. There the bird population I think was 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 pretty good. Now other areas it may not be. It just depends on 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 the habitat.
1: Yeah. So Mike, what are we what are we seeing um in in wild bird populations for turkeys? Is it like a, a nation and 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 I can ask you from a nationwide level or a more localized level, depending on but depending on your sort of exposure to it, but but what is sort of the
2: the research showing? Yeah, I mean, we've we've seen and documented clear declines in turkey populations throughout the Southeast United States, um, as well as in the Midwest. There are a number of states ranging from Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, that have all documented declines in their flocks. Uh, there are parts of the upper Midwest for instance, you, you've seen declines in Ohio, which has resulted in regulations changes there. So there have been declines across broad parts of the species range. Of course, there are areas where turkeys are doing quite well. I mean, there's the populations in the northeast in many areas appear to be doing quite well. Um, you know, the the population in Texas, for instance, has been very stable throughout time Um, but for the most part if you look at a large segment of the united states there has been ongoing declines for the and in some cases for the past 20 years and the declines have been very very slow so if you if you look at the data from say 2005 to 2006 you don't see i mean nothing if you look at the data from 2005 to 2015 uh-oh there there's a decline if you look at the data from 2000 to 2023 you see these very strong clear signals that populations have declined in many areas and that's prompted people to have conversations like what we're having right now that you know clearly we have some issues here we're We're unsure exactly what the issues are, but we do know what some of the issues are. And now we're trying to get a better understanding for what we don't know and try to get a game plan and provide agencies with information to resolve the issues that we do know are are impacting the populations.
1: So, for the controversial question, because it's it, it it does turn into a blame game, right? where it's it's like sure, well, it's this, it's this, but is it is it disease, biology, habitat, habitat loss, environmental change, you know climate change? Um, yeah,
2: yeah, so what we what we do know is that I, I kind of look at I kind of look at at population declines, and I' I look at it through the lens of like a football game. If you look at a at a football game, there's some positions on the field that no matter what game that is, those positions always impact the outcome. The offensive line, the quarterback, you, know, you you name it. There's always positions that influence the outcome. And and then there's some positions that may only influence the outcome meaning win or loss in a particular game okay so if you kind of scale that out to turkeys there are some things that we know are influencing the outcome every single year the outcome being whether the population improves or declines habitat is obviously at the very top of that list um and it's not just habitat in a, you know availability it's one we're we're losing habitat at unbelievable bounds. all you have to do is is drive across the south and east and midwest and just just or drive to florida for god's sakes and just look around you and see what the osceola subspecies is facing just dramatic habitat loss fragmentation where we're taking larger fragments of of forest or habitat and we're splitting them up into smaller pieces that doesn't benefit turkeys, that benefits predators that eat turkeys. It, you know We've converted habitat in a lot of cases. So for instance, we've taken hardwood forest and we've converted it to pine forest or, or conifers, you know, to, in a broader sense. So we've taken hardwood and converted it to softwood in a lot of areas. And to Steve's point, a lot of those those forests are not managed well in a lot of cases they're not they're not thinned in other words they're not opened up they're not treated with prescribed fire which improves the understory for turkeys so you, when when i say we have habitat issues it's kind of it's very broad it's not just well we don't have enough of it it's well we're losing it we're fragmenting it and we're not managing it like the way that we need to be and and that kind of leads into the second position on the field that that's important everywhere. And that's predation. What, you know, predators eat turkeys and eat turkey eggs. That that's just the reality of it. That's the way it's been forever. One of the reasons that wild turkeys are so wary is because they deal with predation risk all the time. There's something out there that wants to kill them all the time. But, what we've seen over the past few decades as we've allowed habitat to change as we've changed our landscapes we've created conditions that are ideal for many predators that influence turkeys species that use edges species that benefit from fragmentation from taking say a large block of, of forest and splitting it up into 10 smaller blocks uh species that benefit from roads and rights of way that allow them to travel uh and efficiently use their noses to find prey in this case turkey eggs or turkeys themselves so while that's been going on we you you see a collapse in the fur market so there's very little predator trapping occurring in a lot of places and you've seen regulations enacted to protect species such as birds of prey. And and while that's completely justifiable, the the collective result is, we now have evidence that, that a lot of the predators that influence turkeys and many other species are at all time apex levels. And so if you have more predators out there and you have, habitat that's better for predators than it is turkeys, it's not surprising that you see high predation rates or high, you know, loss of turkeys. And that's what we see in our research projects. For instance, 80% of all nests fail, meaning 80% of it, all nests are eaten by predators. Uh, 65% of all the nests that do hatch, those poults are killed. So... Our data across the entire South suggests about 7% of all of of nests produce a pole that lives, 7%. So it's hard being a turkey and they've got a lot of, they have a lot of challenges facing them. But those two, that the habitat and kind of the the predation and how it's influenced by habitat, those are two positions that I kind of liken to, they're the offensive and defensive line. Those are two positions that affect the outcome of every single game, meaning how Turkey populations function everywhere, every year.
1: How much do humans in, in, according to what you've you know researched, how much does do humans play a role as, as part of that predatory structure?
2: Well, there's, we have very clear evidence that hunting affects turkeys in a number of ways. Um, we have always looked at, well, first of all, let me back up. You know, wild turkeys are 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 unique. They're the only game bird in the lower 48 that's hunted primarily during their breeding season. They're the only one. And what that causes is you have a bird that's trying to breed and you have a disruption, this, this disruption uh, during that same time where you're not only removing some of your breeding males, but you're kind of disrupting the process, if you will. And we know that matters. Um, We've always looked at harvest until recently as a numbers game. Like, as long as you don't kill, you know, more than a certain percentage, you're okay. And I, I think in a lot of ways, that was misguided. Because it overlooked the social, you know, these dominance hierarchies. It overlooked... The fact that that not all turkeys are created equal, not all males are are breeders. We know that. We know that not all the males are are breeders in a particular spring. And, and now what we're seeing is kind of this, this recognition that, one, it does appear we're killing a very high percentage of males in some areas in some years. And the bottom line is we're not producing as many turkeys as we did and that those two numbers just don't add up. You know, if you're not producing <clears throat> excuse me, if you're not producing as many and you're taking a lot then you you have to balance your take with your availability. And that's that's what you're seeing a lot of agencies do right now. They're struggling to to adjust harvest guidelines, harvest regulations in the spring to kind of balance out the demand versus the supply. And that's why you've seen so many states like where Steve and I live that have changed the bag limits. You know, they're not allowing as many birds to be harvested per hunter. They've reduced the season length to reduce opportunity uh and what they're those agencies are trying to do is they're trying to carry over more males from one year to the next because we have very clearly seen with with our own data that if you don't shoot a male wall turkey he lives until the next spring uh, predation rates are about 15 percent on average across populations irrespective of spring harvest in other words, there's going to be about 15% that are eaten by predators regardless. So harvest is additive, meaning if you don't shoot them, they will be there next year for the most part. And that's that's why agencies are tweaking their spring hunting regulations, because they're trying to carry over more birds from one year to the next.
1: And Steve, what what have you seen as far as those populations, and have you seen a result of regulatory, you know, influence on populations when regulations go into place? Have you seen an increase?
0: I I mean, Georgia just changed that a couple of years ago. Yeah. So I I mean, I haven't seen it. I don't think it's been there long enough to uh, to really know. Uh, you know, some of the areas where Mike and them are doing their studies, they may have an idea, but. Um, I just don't think it's been in place long enough to really see an impact. Yeah,
2: and that's that's exactly right. Steve's exactly right. I mean it, and and people ask, and and I, I don't want to ruffle any feathers, but you know I'll be asked sometimes. Well, well, why haven't we seen a change? I mean, you change the season, it should fix it. Yeah, that's foolishness. That that's 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 foolishness because. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about one component that's influencing the population versus these things like habitat and predation that are influencing both sexes. They're influencing the population across the state. And then you change the harvest of males from one year. It's ridiculous to think you would see an effect the following year you know this is going to take this is going to take some time and i suspect it's going to be a very slow change uh, that's my prediction and there is some data coming out of arkansas now arkansas made a very dramatic change to their spring season a few years ago and what they did is if you're familiar with Arkansas's story at all Arkansas used to be a destination state for a hunt, for turkey huntings the population just plummeted and the agency uh they changed their season they they went as conservative biologically as you can be they they reduced the harvest of jakes to zero they Time the season where it opens at the peak in nest incubation, which is the most conservative framework you can have, meaning that most of your hens are incubating when the season opens. So most of your breeding has already occurred. They reduced their bag limits. They reduced bag limits on public lands, et cetera. They made very, you know, dramatic changes. And since that change, there are, you you've seen slight upticks each year in production so now granted it was it was terrible production was awful you know less than one pole per hen produced in the summer but since that change you've seen a steady very slow increase each year now whether that will continue i don't know maybe it was just a blurb on the radar but i it's going to take states taking Well, first of all, it's going to take states making a change and then you and I, us as turkey hunters, giving the agency enough license, enough social license to to let the changes pan out, to let's see what's going to happen, understanding it's not going to happen in a year or two, it's going to take five plus years, it's going to take us backing off these agencies and saying, okay. I'm with you. I, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the change and I'm I'm not either. I don't like being told I can't hunt as much. I, I don't like being told I can't harvest as many birds, but you know what? If that's going to matter, then I'm in. And it's going to take us giving the agencies that license for us to see them, you know, see the effects. Yeah. I was going to say, those are the difficult parts. I feel like, you know, people, we have short memory spans. we
1: people want to see that change from year to year. And and you see that with population decline in any species. It, it's not the year to year. It's the 10 year and it's the 20 year, you know, and all you have to do is look, look at, you know, historical chronicles of different game populations to see, you know, there's definitely a decline, you know, in, in certain populations. and And we get we function on that. The immediate gratification. Well, I want to go out now. It's it's well. It's like that's great. You you're gonna find something, but that that influences
0: things ten years down the road. Um, with Matt, can I insert something? Oh yeah, jump in. Yes. You know, one thing I think I think about. You just mentioned something, and but um, the, the turkey hunting population nowadays, especially here in the southeast, you know. Uh, is 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 I think because they grew up in a a time where the populations were very high. They don't remember the days when there wasn't Mm -hmm. that big a population of Turkey. So, so they're spoiled. Um, I mean, I'm spoiled, but you know, you just got to, you know, if if they look back and see those kinds of times, and go back and read some of the literature or some of the books that that people put out, you know it 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 makes a it can make a difference. You just got to be patient with it, like Mike said.
2: And, yeah, I'll tell you, Mac. Out something to Steve's point. He made a a really good point. So a project I'm working on right now is I'm going back and I'm looking at at literature that was written by people that came before me that are the that are what many of us consider as the true pioneers of the turkey world if you will and i'm reading their works because i'm going to start posting about what some of these people did with their lives and their careers and one of those a lot of those people to steve's point grew up when there were no turkeys the the people that restored the wild turkey to the populations we're enjoying now, many of those men and women grew up when there were no turkeys. There were none. And one of those gentlemen is a guy named Wayne Bailey, who um, cut his teeth in West Virginia and North Carolina and, and in many ways is considered the pioneer of turkey restoration. Like he the trap and transport, Wayne Bailey was that guy, the, the catch them and move them from one place to the next. And in a book he wrote, he talks about the fact that, that he can remember as a child not even having the opportunity to, to see a turkey, to, to hunt a turkey, and that how special it was that we restored turkeys to where he could hunt them in the fall, which was his true passion. He could hunt them in the spring. You know, Wayne is credited with killing over 200 birds. Uh, he chronicled every hunt. He made a journal of every hunt. And in his writings, he he was sage and impression enough to note that at some point, we're going to shoot the bird until they're gone. If we don't remember where we've been. And he wrote about the fact that he has been there. I've been there. He says, I remember the days when I could you couldn't I couldn't find you a turkey. And now I can take you to any mountain in West Virginia and find you flock after flock after flock. And he wrote about at the conclusion of a, the last book he published. We need to be mindful of the fact that there are some of us like me that have been been here, if you will when it wasn't like this and if we don't remember what it's like to be here when it when there were no turkeys we're going to repeat the same mistakes of the past and i think it's really important and that's why i'm trying to publicize what these these folks wrote because i suspect to steve's point there are a lot of young turkey hunters and it's not their fault there are a lot of young turkey hunters that have never heard the the name wayne bailey they've never heard of anything that wayne wrote they And I I think as as cerebral as turkey hunters are, that if they read the, the thoughts of these people that are that are responsible for us being able to do what we do, which is chase this bird, it would resonate with them because it would it would it would tell you that here's a man that lived his life. And he saw both ends of the spectrum and and he warned us. I've been at the other end of this. And our own greed is what got us there. And our destruction of the landscape, it's, that's what put us there to begin with when we didn't have turkeys. And then we spent all this time and effort restoring turkeys to where we can enjoy them. But you better not forget the past or we're going to repeat the same mistakes. And I, th- I think that message is something that we need to take heed of. Don't repeat the past.
1: How much range does a turkey need, or, or sorry, turkey population need to be able to flourish?
2: You'd be surprised. Um, we routinely have winter flocks that cover 5,000 acres a month in the south. Turkeys can move. If, like this year, I don't know about where Steve's at, but where I'm at, we're, we're sitting on a record acorn crop. There's acorns everywhere. Birds are not moving at all. They they don't have to move, but in a year where mast is is reduced, they will cover some you know think thousands of acres in the winter. Their spring ranges are pretty consistent. We see that that hens cover about a thousand acres during the the laying nesting season on, on you know total, and toms cover that. To twice that, so say a thousand to two thousand acres during the spring. and then during the summer, they don't move at all. they They use really small home ranges in the summer. But during the winter, they can cover, think thousands of acres. So if you own a hundred acres, you're sharing your turkeys with quite a few of your neighbors.
1: So given the conversation we just had and and this is where you know Steve, I'd definitely jump in um. And, and I mean, the two of you just take it away. Uh, what can we do to assist or help turkeys to flourish, grow some of the populations that are declining? How do we, how do we reverse course? And, and what can we, you know, as, as fans,
0: humans, hunters, conservationists do to, to help those populations? If you want to start or you want me to start? I'll let you start.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been asked this quite a few times and I, I try to answer it the same way every every time. First of all, keep buying a hunting license. Keep keep putting that that injection of money into the state coffers because those hunting licenses fund the state agencies that are charged with managing our public lands. Um, I often, I also encourage people, you know, most people are like me. They don't own land. They, they either hunt public land or they lease land like Steve was talking about, or they have family that may own land. Whatever the case is, if you know anybody that owns land, whether it's one acre, a hundred acres, a thousand acres, whatever it is. Try to help the person that owns that land understand what it takes to benefit wild turkeys from a habitat perspective, whether it's um, talking about prescribed fire with them, putting them in contact with the with the Department of forestry, um helping them understand cost share programs that help private landowners fund habitat management programs, whether it's putting information in front of them to help them understand how many birds should I harvest from from this property? What are some things that I could do to impact any piece of land in, in your environment? If we all put our finger on one piece of land, no matter how big it is, and we tried to make a a positive influence that we we would see the fruits of that, whether it's from a turkey perspective or many other species. That's usually my answer to that question: is try to impact whatever acreage you can in whatever way you can to make to make it positive towards wild turkeys. Because what you're going to see is that if if you start seeing wild turkeys, you're going by default to be able to see through the environment because turkeys make a living being able to see so for turkeys to be present the landscape needs to be fairly open the forest needs to be fairly open meaning it's managed and that managed forest is going to be beneficial for a suite of other species so that's what I use. That's how I usually answer that: is buy those hunting licenses and try to in, have an impact on some acreage of land in your environment, wherever that place on the earth may be. I'm saying, Steve, you impact more acreage
1: than most of us probably ever will. So I like jump in here and
0: and yeah, and 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 I agree with Mike there. And and I don't know if there's a percentage that they look at. Uh, from a turkey standpoint, but I know uh, what I learned uh, from from many good uh, turkey biologists and and those that have. I mean, excuse me, bobwhite quail biologists say quail routinely need a, a third of their habitat needs to be escape cover. A third needs to be cover where they can get around, feed, and get their their uh, young. Through there, find and find uh, food sources. And then there needs to be um, nesting cover, loafing cover, and then escape cover. And turkeys need the same type of habitat. We, and, that, and that's, you know, uh, managing thinning, you know, uh, the two of the best tools is the axe and a match for habitat management. Uh, and, then I, I believe in that I've, I've, I've done it. I've seen it help places. You know, you don't want to burn everything you have, because if you do, you've opened it up. You don't have any of that other habitat and and you want to rate to rotate areas of burning where you have different types of habitat. Um, and that, that kind of leads me to a question that I want to ask Mike, that, uh, I don't, you probably didn't even know to ask, but Mike, um, and I see the complaints from from hunters all over the place, and you may know what's coming, but what about spring burning, burning during nesting season? What, what's your thought on that? Yeah, because,
2: I mean, it's a, and no pun intended, that is a hot topic. I mean, turkey hunters, particularly on, you know, public lands, they see these fairly large-scale fires, large-scale meaning, you know, hundreds if not thousands of acres, that are ignited during the, the nesting season. And the answer to that is we've shown very clearly with research that, that these large fires, say a thousand acres, they're not, they're not a positive for wild turkeys. Right. Um, during the nesting season, you know, you're trying to balance and agencies, are they're trying to balance, um, do we burn it? During the nesting season versus not burn it at all. Uh, You know they're they're dealing with these situations where they're they're trying to meet prescribed fire goals as far as how much acres they burn, and they only have a certain number of days in a year to do it. But the research is pretty clear. If you're if you're going if you're going to burn for turkeys, ideally you would like to avoid the nesting season. But if you can't you wanna keep it fairly small scale. Um, and what about small scale, you know, think, you know, dozens of acres, 50 acres, you know, that type of thing, not 500 or a 1,000. Because what we've seen with turkeys is pretty clear. You should not expect to see a significant number of hens nesting in the same general area they separate themselves, they, they space themselves on the landscape. So if you're burning say 10 acres in April, that's not that's no big deal. And, and our research shows that we lose very, very few, less than, less than 2% actually of nest on our sites that are managed with fire, less than 2% are actually impacted with fire. It's actually right at about 1%. So to answer Steve's question, if you're, if you're considering burning during the nesting season, which can produce exceptionally high quality habitat for turkeys and quail and many other species, just make sure you're doing it at a spatial scale that is, is, is reasonable for a turkey. Um, which can be done if you have control of, you know, if you have control of the land, and and I, I would say before we move off of that, this is one of the things I run into with private landowners that there's a disconnect between in our society between prescribed fire and wildfire. There is a perception in with many landowners that fire is is bad because the press the way we depict fire in our society is it's a destructive force. And what Steve and I are talking here, which this may be, you know, moot for all the listeners of this podcast, you know, these are low intensity understory fires. These are fires that are stimulating vegetation, that are benefiting the environment, that are reducing fuel loads to prevent wildfires. These are things that Research has clearly shown are beneficial. Prescribed fire is beneficial for many, many species, uh, and it's because it stimulates the plant communities and it 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 produces a suite of habitat conditions that are super beneficial for wildlife, including species like deer that that benefit because of improvements to browse food production. So, you know, I run into a lot of people that are like, "Whoa, whoa! You want me to?" You're suggesting i burn this and i'm like yes and and not only that i can get you help i can i can put you in contact with the georgia forestry commission and they can help you do this i can put you in contact with with nrcs and and there are cost share programs to help you deflect the cost of doing this um in some ways you actually end up making money off of managing the land appropriately so that, that's one of the things people like me and and Steve we have to do a better job. We have to be able to 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 make people understand that it's not impossible to do the things we're talking about doing. It's very feasible and it can be very economically feasible if you if you reach out and use the resources that are available to help you do the, the
0: management. I think that's pretty uh Pretty sound advice. I can't, I, I wish I could pitch in
1: something or, 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 or guide this somewhere, but I, I don't know. That I, I could, but Steve, jump in.
0: Well, I was going to say uh, just in the last few minutes, I think we have probably come up with some other topics for some other podcasts uh-huh. that we could get into. <laughs> I, no, I think we're exactly to that. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, no, uh, Mike, I, I know that we're going to have you again, talk about chronic wasting disease. Um, but I, I would love to have it. I would love to get you on here for, for a couple other discussions as well on turkeys. Um,
2: sure. not a
1: problem. We we can just occupy all your time. You don't even need to work anymore. You can just sit around and talk with us.
2: Yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, that sounds attractive. That doesn't pay the bills. I know, I know.
1: And we've gone we've gone way over. I really I really appreciate the time that you've given and obviously your flexibility and like we've gone over a little bit here. Um so I can't thank you enough, man. Um, it's not a problem. I'm happy to happy to join you. Cool. And Steve, thank you as well. Um, appreciate your time and expertise as well. Um, so, yeah, to both of you, uh, thank you very much. We will have you on again. Uh, we'll do this again
2: soon. Yep, sounds good. Thank you, Mike. Yep, see you, Steve. All right,
0: have a good one. Yep, thank you, you, Matt.